0: Happy Easter, guys. It's so good to be together. Uh, If you haven't already, let me invite you to open your Bibles to the passage our friend just read. Raise this up a little bit. All right, there we go. The older I get, I think the more I appreciate Easter each year. I grew up in a house that celebrated Easter. We were a family that, that went to church. Um, and, and Easter was a holiday that, I mean, it was a holiday, but it wasn't one I necessarily looked forward to outside of chocolate and bunnies. that makes sense? I grew up, and I probably agreed with this guy named Garrison Keillor when he said this, Easter can be so disappointing. You suffer all the way through Lent, and what do you get for it? A ham. <laughs> I thought that was funny. <laughs> as a kid, nothing for me topped Christmas. Right? Easter, yeah, you got some chocolate bunnies and you got some jelly beans, but nothing topped Christmas. Christmas, you get presents. And you did get candy on Easter, but nothing topped the amount of candy that you got like on Halloween, right? So Easter was somewhere under Halloween for me as I was a kid. But I was... As I got older and as I've been more and more struck each year with the realities of Easter, I think Easter is a little more than just about candy. Maybe you think Easter is just about candy. And maybe you're confused. Why do we have egg hunts and peeps when this is supposed to be about the resurrection of Jesus? Billy Crystal humorously concluded, 2,000 years ago, Jesus is crucified. Three days later, he walks out of a cave and they celebrate with chocolate bunnies and marshmallow peeps and beautifully decorated eggs. I guess these were the things Jesus loved as a child. The Easter bunny and, and Easter eggs, they, they are two kind of symbols that, that are symbolic of what Easter is about. Right? Bunnies are known, they have a reputation for being prolific procreators. So Easter bunny is about life, right? I didn't expect that to be funny. <laughs> Easter eggs are... <laughs> Stop it, Stephanie. <laughs> Easter eggs are said to represent the tomb, right? And according to some le- legends, decorated eggs for Easter came about about the 13th century. And in that, during that time, eggs were actually forbidden to eat during Lent. So as you concluded Lent, you would decorate an egg, and to celebrate the conclusion of Lent on Easter, you would eat an egg. This is, what they, this is how we came to kind of including a time of penance and fasting, you would eat an egg. And according to legend or tradition, this is how we got Easter eggs. But I think there's a great tendency in our hearts, and I, I've felt this and I saw this in my, in my own life. There's a great tendency that we have as human beings to move from the worship of God to the worship of things God created. And we, we celebrate and we get really excited about gifts, over the giver. In other words, our enjoyment of a chocolate bunny doesn't end with Jesus, like, thank you, Jesus, that you made this chocolate bunny right for me. Like, you, you created this bunny for my mouth, and I'm enjoying it, and you've given me taste buds. Wow, Jesus, you're so good, and now I can enjoy this, and it reminds me of how good you are to me. I think that's a God-glorifying way to eat a chocolate bunny. Maybe you can eat one of those today and think that. Wow. Thank you, God. We can often end with the enjoyment being the bunny itself, and we don't go to God. The British writer and theologian C.S. Lewis wrote about this in his little book called The Weight of Glory. He writes this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So I pray, I hope that as we celebrate Easter today, we realize there is far greater pleasure than finding an egg. There's far greater satisfaction than than eating a chocolate bunny. And that's in Jesus. Jesus certainly there's much better pleasure than eating a ham in Jesus. If you're gripped by the realities of Easter and what Easter means, you believe that, that the life and work of Jesus, in Jesus, there's, there's offered a new kind of rest, a new kind of peace, a new kind of satisfaction for the soul, something that moves past a satisfaction of, of our hungry stomachs, or what we might want in our mouths It's a deep, lasting satisfaction in Jesus, in the soul, And many of you have experienced this reality. I experienced this reality in high school. Jesus gripped my life, and he sent me on a trajectory of change and grace since then. The reason we've started this church and, and long to minister and love one another and serve our communities because of this Jesus, we think he's this good. We want to share him with others. And this morning, I'd like to consider what is the proper response to Easter? What's the proper response to Jesus's life, death, and resurrection? How should we respond if this is true? And I think we get get an answer to that in Colossians 2, 6 through 15, the passage our friend Mackenzie just read earlier. In Colossians 2, 6 through 15, we see Paul describe what Jesus' life, death, and resurrection means for those who have placed their faith in Christ. We see this phrase, in Christ, repeated a lot through this passage. And he calls for the Colossian Christians not to be taken captive, not to be deceived by any other system of religion, any other system of belief, any other human tradition, but that's not according to Christ. And Paul's message was that Jesus is enough. Like you have Jesus, you have everything you need. Yet there were some that were coming and teaching that Jesus is not enough that you need to do certain things. There's food rituals, or in the case of the Colossians, there, there was, you had to have certain angel worship or certain spiritual rites, or you want true, deeper knowledge. You have to know these secrets. Or you want true protection from evil spirits. You have to do these things. And I think this is still a struggle for the church today. Is it not? The temptation to move on from the gospel. It's gospel plus, Jesus plus. We quickly add to the gospel the good news about Jesus and it becomes, you know, the gospel is the beginning, but then you move on from it and you progress into deeper realities and and truths and human traditions and religions creep in that essentially say, in order to be accepted, you must obey. But Christianity is fundamentally different than any other religion. It says you are accepted, therefore you obey. So Paul is telling the Colossians, don't move on from Christ Don't move on from the gospel. You don't move on from Jesus. So what he says, Colossians 2, 6 through 7. Look there in in your scriptures, or it's going to be up on the screen. Therefore, as you received Christ the Lord, so walk in him. So how did the Colossians receive Christ? By faith. And the call is to continue in faith, continue to walk in him. Verse 7, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. If you look at the original language of this, of this phrase, of this verse, there's some pretty cool insights that we can glean from it. The word there, rooted, in the original sense, is it's, it's used in a past tense, this, this Greek form of the perfect. And it describes an action that's been completed with effects that, that go on into the future. So the work has been done, but the, the effects, it, it has continuing results. So he says, rooted, but then built, is used in the present tense, meaning there's a continual building. There's a continual growing. And with these different metaphors and images, Paul is essentially saying, you've been rooted in Christ. You've been planted in him once and for all. And that planting has continual effects. The effects of those look like being built up in him, growing in him, maturing in him. There's There's a present tense to it. He wants them to be like a tree rooted in Christ with deep roots that are stable, he wants them to be built up like a house, to continually grow and to be edified in him. And then he says there, abounding in thanksgiving. And an image Paul ha- might have in mind here is, is that of wine kind of overflowing from a jar or from a container. It's just constantly spilling over. It's not like the, the kid who goes to the refrigerator and it fills it to the brim, and, and then he's trying to walk back to the table and you know a little bit spilling out here and there as kids don't have, you know, oftentimes great balance. And I, I mean, I, I can't even fill a glass at the top. I'll just spill it over the floor. This is more like a fountain where the source is continually going in. You're, you're holding that cup under the refrigerator water dispenser and you're not letting go. And it's continually overflowing. This is what Paul is saying. I want your thanksgiving to be like that. Overflowing, it's plentiful. It's, it's not running out, it's abounding. It's, it's flowing out of the church. In other words, Paul says, a church that is rooted in Christ and growing in him is full of thanksgiving. Their wallet is so full of thanksgiving, they'll never run out of it. They can just keep giving thanks away. I don't, I don't know if that makes sense, but the bank of things to give thanks thanks for is never depleted. There's always things to, be, to give thanks for. So in light of these two verses, I'm going to conclude that the proper response that we see to Easter from this passage is, If Jesus is real, if he died, if he really rose again, the proper response for Christians to the Easter reality and message is continual growth and thanks. That's what Paul is encouraging the church this morning. How should we live? We should grow and give thanks. These are two responses to the Easter message that we see in our passage this morning. Up to this point in the letter, Paul has given the Colossians many reasons to give thanks to Christ. Up to this point in the letter, he has talked about how Christ is preeminent, that all things were made through Christ, that that all things were from Christ and all things are for Christ. He's elevated the glory of Christ. And then he's going to give the Colossians more things to give thanks for in the preceding verses. Proceeding, following, right, following verses. He's going to tell them, live only on the basis of Jesus. Don't follow any other belief because Jesus is the fullness of deity and human form. He has brought about redemption through his death, resurrection, and uh, ascension, and he's triumphed over his enemies. So this is what he says in verse eight: "See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ." Why should they do that? For in him, in Christ, the full, whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head and rule and authority. You guys see the the flow of thought that Paul is making here? Don't follow any other human tradition because Christ has the full whole fullness of the the deity in, in bodily form. And you have been filled in him. Other translations might say you've been complete in him. You don't need anything else. You have Christ. You've been filled with him. Don't be taken captive by other philosophies and deceits that don't elevate and talk and and point to the glory of Christ. You have Christ, you have everything you need. If you believe in Jesus, you've been united in him, you've been filled with him, and Christ is the head of all rule and authority. Man, that's awesome. You don't move on from Christ. In him, you also were circumcised. And we're thinking, okay, where's he going with this? It's not a word we think about often or use often outside of, talking about small boys, small baby boys, infants. In him you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So right away we see this is not some sort of physical procedure. It's not not a circumcision that's made with hands. This is a spiritual circumcision. So the Christians have not only been filled, but they've been circumcised. A spiritual circumcision where, where Paul is relating this to the cutting away of the sinful flesh. In other words, they've been freed from the, the sinful nature, the flesh. They, they no longer have to sin. Christians are no longer enslaved to sin, enslaved to self-centeredness. They can love and, and they're not, they don't have to be forced and enslaved in, in being wrapped up in themselves. Christians have been united with Jesus. They've been circumcised in him. And then look in verse 12. They've also been risen with him or buried with him and risen. It says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So how do you experience this kind of burial and resurrection with Jesus? What does Paul say? Through faith. The spiritual act, spiritual encounter, that the reality that Paul is talking about here in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul is saying that baptism, this rite of the church represents this identification with Jesus, that you have been buried with him and raised to walk a new life. Therefore, on Easter Sunday, as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, we are also celebrating our very own resurrection because we have been united to Christ. That is amazing news. We don't just have to hope. Okay, Jesus, you did that 2,000 years ago. Man, I hope that happens for me. No, Jesus has been raised. You have been raised. You believe in him. You've been united to him. You've been buried with him and you will be raised with him. Praise God. Dying and raising with Jesus means that there is a death to the power of sin and there's new power to live the Christian life. You've been new power to obey. And even though we were dead in our trespasses, Paul writes, God made us alive together with him and he's forgiven all of our sins. How do we see this? How does he forgive our sins? Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing, triumphing, triumphing over them in him. And it seems like at this point, Paul just wants to bust out and praise and, and we could do the same. Praise God that he has done this. He has put our enemies to open shame. In the Greco-Roman world, this, there was this record of debt. Uh, it's called chiregraphon. You going to know a little Greek word? It, it, it was this written note. And we have today, we don't have these things. We don't have written, written records or notes of our debt. We have apps. <laughs> we have bank statements. We have credit card companies that tell us, this is how much you owe me. We can look at that. In the Greco-Roman world, they had this note. They had this record, written excuse me, written record of debt. My tongue's getting tied there. And Paul is saying this, this written note, this record of charges... This legal indebtedness that stood against you and condemned you has been nailed to the cross. This condemning evidence, but imagine if someone had a list of all your wrongdoings, it would probably be bigger than a post-it note. Probably wouldn't be enough paper to have our record of wrongdoings. And this is condemning evidence. This is evidence that God could use in in a jury to condemn us. And Paul writes in verse 14, he has canceled the record of debt. How? Look there. He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Paul also has another image here in mind. And that is when, when someone was crucified in the, in the Roman world, when, when, a, when the Romans crucified someone on the cross, they, they had a, a plaque, a sign that they would nail to the cross, they would put to the cross, they'd fix to the cross, And the sign had what the crime was for what the reason was why this criminal was suffering on the cross. It was like Jesus, you know, Pilate, Pontius Pilate wrote according to Jesus and the sign that he wrote above Jesus was Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, King of the Jews. And it was kind of, he was mocking the Jews and, you know, they said they don't write King of the Jews, but rather he said he was King of the Jews. And Pilate says, I've written what I've written. (laughs) I've always wanted to use that with my kids. Hey, I've said what I've said. He canceled it. This is, this is what Paul's talking about. It's almost as if, you know, yes, there was a physical sign nailed to Jesus that said, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, King of the Jews. It's almost as if Paul is saying there's a spiritual sense in which this record of debt, this record of all your wrongdoings, the condemning evidence has been nailed to the cross with Jesus. This he covered with his death. All your wrongdoings nailed to the cross. Jesus was killed for our crimes. This is how he canceled our debt. He took it upon himself. He made the payment himself with his own blood. And then Paul writes, the cross then puts to open shame enemies, the rulers, I think Paul has in mind here the defeat of the devil, the accuser, the one who stands before and slanders, who accuses us, who seeks to cause us to hide and to shame, to cause us to believe that we're not forgiven, we're not loved. The cross becomes the symbol of his public humiliation and defeat. It's done. You can't accuse anymore. The record of wrong has been nailed to the cross. Therefore, it's done. It's finished. And the Romans, when they defeated it, I mean, they had this, they had this. They had this way to publicly humiliate their enemies. And what they would do, they had a, a victory march, a parade. And the losers, if the Romans defeated someone, they would march them through Rome in a, a parade of losers. You can almost imagine, you know, we are the champions wasn't written at this point, but kind of we are the losers would be sung by these people walking through the streets of Rome. This was, this was, a, this was the, the way the Romans had this victory parade. They'd, they'd, they'd put their enemies through Rome and openly mock them and shame them. It's kind of cruel. Like imagine your Super Bowl team. They made it all the way to the Super Bowl and they lost. And then that team has to go to the opposing city and have a losing parade where the opposing city can mock them and shame them. Maybe some of you are thinking, wow, that'd be kind of sweet actually. <laughs> Paul is saying the cross is like that, triumphing over the rulers and authorities, putting to open shame, evil, death, death, through his very resurrection and through being raised from the dead. So these are the reasons, all these reasons are why I think the proper response to Easter is giving thanks. Amen? This is all things that Paul has said, you know, what, what part did we have into this? Nothing. Like this is, these are what, this is what Jesus has done. What are the reasons we have to give thanks according to the passage? Why should thanksgiving abound in our life? Let's, let's, let's summarize. We've been filled and completed in Christ. The enslavement to sin has been removed. We've been buried with Jesus and raised with him through faith. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive with him. You had all of your trespasses forgiven, all of them. You had your record of debt canceled. You had the rulers and evil authorities have been put to open shame. Paul writes there, they've been disarmed. They don't have ammunition against you. There's no longer a... a, accusing that it can happen because the sin has been forgiven, it's been canceled. And Paul has sought to ground the Colossians by describing all that Jesus has done because the Colossians have believed by faith that Jesus has done this and he's calling them to continue by faith in this. Don't move on from this message. Christians receive Jesus by faith. We continue to grow in faith through faith, and Jesus is not ever someone we move on from. We continually need to be reminded and remember what he's done for our continual progress and sanctification and journey of faith. Our obedience flows out of what Jesus has done. Our obedience flows in response. It's grounded in this thankfulness. It's not grounded in anxiety, because it's not up to us to perform. It's not grounded in shame because it's not about the bad things that we've done. It's not about frustration because it's about us when we continually fail. It's grounded in the faithfulness of Jesus. Therefore, there is always reason to give thanks. There is always thanks that can be flowing up as Jesus is pouring out his love and mercy and grace towards us. There is always reason to give thanks as we come together and sing to him and praise him and worship him because of what he has done. If you believe that there is a man, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God, who died on the cross, who was buried, who was raised on the third day, I think it does more for you than whether you believe in Santa or not. It does something more to us versus Easter bunnies or Easter chickens or whatever you think lays those eggs. I don't know. If the resurrection is true, it means that this is not all there is that there's hope, that there's peace, that there's comfort, that forgiveness is possible. If the resurrection is true and those who believe and trust that it's true and believe that it's compelling, there's always reason to give thanks. So this Easter Sunday, my call to us as the church, those who are gathered to remember the resurrection of Jesus is to give thanks, to worship Jesus and to give thanks not to seek to uh, move on from Christ, but continually to grow in Him and to give thanks for Him. Why is thanksgiving the proper response for those who have believed and trusted in Jesus? Overflowing, we don't lack thanksgiving; it's plentiful because what of Jesus? Because what Jesus has done. Why do we give thanks? When you do something for yourself, you don't thank yourself, right? Can we agree on that? That's, we don't do that. That would be strange. We thank God because he has done done something for us that we could never do for ourselves. There's a sitcom of the early 2000s called The Office. And it's about a paper company named Dunder Mifflin. And in one episode, the pizza is ordered to the office. And there's a paper salesman there named Dwight Schrute who pays the pizza deliverer an exact change. No tip. And the camera, it cuts to a, we switch to a cut scene where Dwight says this, why tip someone for a job I'm capable of doing myself? I can deliver food. I can drive a taxi. I can and do cut my own hair. I did, however, tip my urologist because I'm unable to pulverize my own kidney stones. There's a tension with this logic of Dwight Schrute here is the logic that we are to have about Christ. We cannot cancel the record of debt. We cannot make payment for our sins. It required the death of ourselves. And yet Jesus has come in and said, your record of debt, the blood payment that you owed, the cost of your redemption, I've covered that in myself. Therefore, live a life of freedom and thanksgiving. Amen? And we say, thank you, Jesus. That is our response. We did not earn it. We did not deserve it. We can't do anything for it. We can receive it and we can give thanks. So let us give thanks this Easter Sunday. Jesus, thank you. You have saved us. Jesus, thank you. You are doing a work in us. You are making us more like you. You are at work in our church. You are at work in our city and the glory and the honor and the praise goes to you alone. Thank you, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, may we not cease to give thanks for you, for Jesus, for this resurrection. I pray now that you would grant us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Jesus, that that you would cause us, that the the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, that we would know what, what is the hope to which you have called us, Jesus. What are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might when he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead, and he set him at the right hand in the heavenly places? We thank you, Father. We pray that according to the riches of your glory, that you would grant us to be strengthened with power through your spirit in our inner being, that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. That we would be rooted and grounded in love, and that we would have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. We pray this to you, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.